0: All episodes of the Garage Build podcast are recorded live in the Law Fran Studios, the law offices of Fran Hosh, Palm Harbor, Florida. Call 1-866-LawFran or go to lawfran.com. The law offices of Fran Hosh, serving the Tampa Bay biker community for over 20 years. Good Monday morning I am Jason Hallman welcome back to the garage built podcast as I announced in the last episode we have a format change and I've got a lot of questions about that from people and basically here's what it is I have decided to change the format of the podcast to one that plays to the crowd of people that I orbit in so specifically entrepreneurs and more specifically motorcycle entrepreneurs. So if I have a gas on, it's going to be topical and relevant. And now, if I have a subject matter, like today's subject is my 300% rule, that's going to be based on business. So I want to make sure that everybody knows to go and visit our sponsors, the Arlen Ness motorcycle company, go to arlenness.com. bell helmets, Bell helmets has got me hooked up in one of their carbon eliminators. It's the official helmet of the garage podcast team dream rides in Tennessee and in Stockton, California, sticking it out with us here for 2021, 1620 USA workwear, go to 1620 USA, get yourself some of the best workwear on the planet. It is 100% lifetime guaranteed. So listen, next year, the High Seas Rally is going to set sail from Port Canaveral, Florida. And I'm going to be on it. A bunch of my friends are going to be on it. Xavier from Providence Cycle Works is going to be on it. Go to highseasrally.com. Book yourself a ticket. Get on there. Drinks are on us. Follow me on my Instagram page at Speed Metal Built and at the Garage Built Podcast. And you'll get a discount code to allow you to save on a cabin. It's the Garage Build Podcast. I'm your host, Jason Hallman. It's time to get this thing out of the garage, up on the street. You're listening to the Garage Build Podcast with your host, Jason Hallman. Good morning, and welcome back to the Garageville Podcast. I am Jason Hallman, and I am happy to be here with you this morning. Um, Lots of stuff going on. This is pre-Sturgis, so while I don't have a lot of time, I am making time to do this podcast because it's that important to me. Uh, Well, as we talked last issue or last episode rather, episode 63, we talked about my format change. And I want to explain that again, just so that everybody understands that this is a podcast to share my ins and outs of business. I've been in business since 2003. I'll give you a little backstory on that later in the podcast. But what I wanted to talk to you about is how I govern myself, how I govern things in my shop. And listen, Even though I've been doing this for a very long time and I've had small shops, big shops, two shops, one shop, the whole thing, I've run the gamut. I've had shops in Detroit, shops down here in Florida now for 11 years. And uh, all of those things are learning opportunities. And so everything that you do is a learning opportunity. And I want to make sure that you understand that I want this to be a learning opportunity for you and for myself. So, while I sit here and pontificate and share what I do with you on a regular basis, I want to let you know that there are times, many times, where I make mistakes. And mistakes are opportunity, opportunity to learn. And I know everybody says that. And again, I'm not trying to be some self help guru, some Tony Robbins, but I will tell you this if I bulldog all the things that I learn, and when I leave this joint, I'm not sharing anything, then all of those experiences go nowhere. And if you can extract one thing from the podcast that means something to you, then that does it for me. I'm happy. I, uh, I want people to understand that I, I'm an open book. I always have been, and I've been faulted for that for a very long time. And just recently I'm realizing that people appreciate it. So when I was an open book early in my career, I was an open book because I wanted to share what I was doing with people that were doing something similar in hopes that they would share with me what they're doing that worked and not worked. Well, I realized a couple of things about entrepreneurs. One, we have a tendency to be a bit egotistical. And, and that sounds, I mean, that's probably one of the worst things you can be is, is to have an ego, but everyone has an ego. Um, it's how you use that ego and how you protect that ego, um, that determines whether it's a good or bad thing. It's good to have a little bit of an ego. Um, it keeps you alert. It's a coping mechanism. Um, however, when you use your ego to further only your causes, that's not a healthy place for you or anybody that you keep in your circle. Um, I call that bulldogging. If you bulldog all of the information that you have, well, not only are you not sharing with somebody and potentially helping them not have a problem, you're preventing yourself from getting help from them. Now, there is the, the... Thing that happens with everybody. You see somebody that you're friends with. Let's let's talk about somebody that, think of somebody right now that maybe you're friends with them, but not close friends. Your wife's not friends, but you're friends and you know them through business and you run into them and they say, hey man, how's it going? Now you have two choices. You can say, uh, everything's great. I'm good. How are you? Move on. Or you can say, oh man, this thing sucks, this thing sucks, this thing sucks, this thing sucks. And I've learned over the years that that greeting, that salutation, that, hey, how's it going, is a conversation starter, but shouldn't be used in a negative way. If you unload on somebody when they ask you how you're doing, that is not what that's for. And so you got to think about that. And I learned early on from Steve at Stevenson Cycle, Steve Royals in Wayne, Michigan, that never, never answer that question with a diatribe about how shitty things are going for you. Because most of the time when things are going shitty, it's a result of the decisions that you've made. It doesn't mean that everything is, everything. it's never always shitty, right? It's never always shitty. You've got to find something good in everything that you're doing. You have to find that because those are building blocks to get out of, situation that you're in you've got to look at things from a little bit of a rose-colored glasses and so that's one of the things that you have to do you you have to find something in there and sometimes your ego helps you out of that okay but um being an open book can be something that is early on people don't want to share with you when they're making a mistake and that's ego and i'm okay with that um however I would recommend, highly recommend that every entrepreneur find somebody who doesn't do what they do for a living, but is still self employed, and talk to that person and ask them to be a mentor. I had several mentors. And uh, I still have several mentors. Right now, for this project in Torque, my mentor is Chris Callen from Cycle Source Magazine and Source Media. He's my mentor in all this. He's the one that's uh, that's giving me the information that I need to get to the next step. And trust me, no one's going to see all the hard work that went into producing that magazine when it comes out in a couple weeks. It's just, it's not possible. Uh, if the work comes out in it in that... Um, then that's the, that's akin to when someone comes up to you and says, Hey man, how are things going? And I go, Oh man, you know, putting on a magazine was really hard. It was, uh, you know, a couple 16 hour days and I I didn't get this right. And I didn't get that. And this person didn't get me this. And this person didn't me that. None of that matters. When I see somebody in surges and they go, Hey, how's it going? I'm going to be able to handle that hand them rather, uh, a torque magazine. And they're going to know that hey things must be going pretty good he got this done and i can imagine that that would be a pretty tall order so the ego can be a good thing but sharing is an even better thing and as i get older in this business and i realize that when i have a conversation with somebody they're more apt to open up to me because i've shared with them and because of sheer time in the business they're willing to share more things with me than what they would have been able to share with me years previous because they know I've been there. They know I understand. And that's a good point. You know, when you, uh, when you're an entrepreneur, you'll find that most of your friends are entrepreneurs in some way, shape or form, just because birds of a feather flock together. Right. And so those kinds of things are what this podcast is all about. This is me sharing with you things that worked, things that didn't work. I would be lying to you right now if I told you everything was great in my business. Everything's just awesome. It's not. It never is. And it's never going to be. And that's part of what makes an entrepreneur an entrepreneur. And that's one of the other things I want to talk about today in this uh, episode is that when you are an entrepreneur, there is no end. There can't be. It can never end. And what I mean by that is um, when you go work for somebody else, there's a date, right? There's a stamp. You are a carton of milk. You're sitting in a chair. And I'm not trying to disparage anybody who goes and works for somebody else at all, but I want you to think about this. You go work for company A. You start there when you're 25, 30 and out, 25 to 35, 35 to 45, 45 to 55. Right? 30 years. You put 30 years in with somebody else. And the idea is that if you give somebody 30 years, there's a payout for that of some sort, right? It's either it used to be a pension, but those are few and far between now. Uh, Then it was a 401k. And now people become very aware of the fact that they are, in some way, shape, or form, almost 100% responsible for the retirement. So when you're working for somebody else, you have a finite amount of money to work with. And that's based either either off of time or salary, which is also based off of time. It's kind of like this aggregate number that as you click off every 365 days that you are on this planet and every 365 days that you are in that companies employ, there's this metric that works, right? And you're supposed to have saved this much money so that you can live this long with this kind of thing. And there's there's all these metrics. When you're self-employed, that's not a reality. You know, it's nice to be able to give yourself a salary. And it there's been different times where that's what I did in the business is I gave myself a salary. Ultimately, you're required to legally pay yourself a salary, and it's supposed to be equal to uh, some nominal number that is Created out of the ethos of people who do what you do for a living, and there's that goes above my my pay grade. That gets into uh, fiduciary things that my accountant handles. But there's an there's an end game for somebody. You know, you're a carton of milk with a date on it, and when you hit that date, you get the golden watch, you get the pension, you get the. Uh, medical insurance for you and your wife, hopefully, until you get Medicare or Medicaid, whatever it is, and then you go off and, and you do your thing. And, you know, you arguably have made enough money for somebody else that they pay you for the rest of your life. Well, that's not something that happens with every entrepreneur, right? There's a cycle. You've got to be innovative. You've got to be hardworking. And you've got to kick that can down the road as many times as it takes. There is no end to this. When you're an entrepreneur, everything is your responsibility. Everything is your fault, no matter who did it in your employee, No matter who scratched that fender, you've got to pay to get it fixed. So ultimately, it is your responsibility and your fault. So if you don't have procedures, policies in place that people are willing to follow because they make sense and they, they complement the flow of the work they're doing, They're not going to be able to do that. And so when you hire somebody, you've got to think more than just what their salary is with the taxes and all the responsibility that goes along with that. You've got to think about, are you going to be able to emotionally support this person, financially support this person, physically support this person? Because all of those things are metrics that have to happen. And sometimes because we're entrepreneurs, we're willing to work 18 hours in a day to get something done, go to sleep for a few hours, get up, cram some breakfast down our throat, get back to the shop, do it over and over and over as many times as it takes. I've been at my shop many times while the sun came up. And I've definitely been at my shop many times after midnight. We cannot ask an employee to do that. We cannot demand an employee to do that, and we cannot expect an employee to do that. So your expectations have to be manageable. The expectations you put on your employees have to be manageable. You have to fill their bucket on a regular basis. Part of what you do for a living when you own a business that has employees is you take care of them. Now, we operate my business with three major rules, right? The three major rules from the top down, these are the ones that I follow. Number one is you feed the wolf at the door. You feed the wolf at the door. Now, what does that mean? That means that you take care of whatever the most important thing, whatever that may be, whether it be you're behind on rent, you haven't filed your sales tax, and they're calling or sending send hate mail, whatever it is, the customer that's very unhappy for one reason or another, that's what you take care of. That's the wolf at the door. And here's the bad news. I've got bad news for you. That wolf never goes away. It's like a stray, it's like a stray dog. The first time you feed it, it's always going to be there. Okay, there's always a wolf at the door. Rule number two is you take care of your employees, okay? And that means whatever they need. Literally, whatever they need. You know, people go home and they spend less time with their families than what they spend with their career. If you do the math, okay, a 40-hour work week, is 2,080 hours a year, okay? 2,080 hours. If you divide that by 24, they're spending 86, almost 87 days every year at your place of business handling things for you, for your place of business, dealing with customers, whatever it is that their job description entails, they're putting nearly nearly 87 days a year in at your business. If that's, if they only work 40 hours. So you need to think about that for a second. Think about how much trust an employee must have in their employer to spend 87 days a year working on whatever it is your business does. If you machine parts, that's 87 days machining parts. You mow lawns, that's 87 days mowing lawns every year, okay? Every year, which is the equivalent usually to what people sleep, right? It's pretty close. So rule number two is always going to be Take care of your employees. Feed the wolf at the door. Take care of your employees. Now, the last rule is, is just as important as the first two. And that is live to work another day. And why I say that is because, like I said earlier, this never ends. When you're an entrepreneur, it never ends. It doesn't go away. You will go on vacation. Your business still has to operate in some way, shape, or form. Because everything that happens in and around your business is 100% your fault, your responsibility. That's what you asked for. That's what you asked for. On the mirror at home, where I get ready, I'm having a sign made, just some stickers, but it says, stop complaining. You asked for all of this. And think about that for a second. If you're in business at some point in time, you decided I'm not doing this for somebody else anymore. I'm doing this for myself. And I know exactly where I was, what I was doing when I made that determination. And I stuck to it. I stuck to it. I can tell you exactly what I was doing. And I will, in fact. So in 1993, I left super shops to get what I would call my first adult job. I worked for a company called Livernoy Vehicle Development, and they were in Dearborn, Michigan, and they had 17 buildings and over a thousand employees, and they had done a ton of work in the prototype field for Ford Motor Company. I became a prototype auto technician you didn't have to be a licensed mechanic to do that because you were technically working on a fleet of vehicles that weren't even really real cars they were manufactured cars so they had m plates on them and they were weird looking they were called mules and i got this job and it was this really clean workspace with well-lit gray floors that were that were mopped every day brand new hoists everybody had brand new tools it was a fantastic working environment especially for a young man that wanted to be a mechanic and I got this job working there with my buddy, Dave. And then subsequently afterwards, we got a couple of our other buddies there. So going to work every day was fun. It was work and we didn't make a lot of money, but we had fun and we learned and we got to do some really cool stuff. Well, every couple of days or so, now remember there's 17 buildings in and around Dearborn, Michigan that were all owned by, and still are, by Livernois Vehicle Development. In fact, they are the second largest landowner in Dearborn except for the Ford Motor Company, just to give you kind of an idea of how much property they owned. So there was a guy who would come around, and he had really nice Florsheim shoes, or Johnston and Murphys, I don't know which, but real high-end, really nice leather shoes. Had a beautiful Rolex watch. Wore the finest, perfect suits I'd ever seen that were tailored. Had his hair slicked back. Little pinky ring. And he would come around, there was probably 40 of us that were working on the floor and this guy would come around every time he was in the building and he'd walk up to you and Jason, how's it going? Oh, it's going good. And he'd say, you know, how's it's Karen, right? It's your wife's Karen, right? And I said, yeah, yeah, it's Karen. How's Karen doing? Karen's doing great. You guys are good. Yeah. You got, you just got married. Everything's good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So everything was great, right? This guy came around and he did that for everybody and before he walked away from me he'd go is everything good do you need anything and I, you know no no, no every, everything's good mr bianchi everything's good and he'd ask if you needed anything and most of the time you didn't because you didn't want to ask this guy for something and he'd walk away and i was like that what does that guy do like that's the job that i want i want that guy's job how do you get that guy's job and, you know, of course, in the lunchroom, everybody's clowning on me. And like, you want Sam's job? He's the vice president of the company. I'm like, well, how do you do that? Where do you, where do you get that job? Where do you sign up for that job? Is there an application for that? What's the deal? And this guy was, you know, 30 years my senior. He had been with the company since Christ was a carpenter. Um, he knew everybody in that building by first name, remembered their spouse's name remembered some little anecdotal thing that had happened that we had told him about because, you know, he'd come around and go, Hey, how are things going? And he'd go great. Last weekend we went in here and we did this and it was so much fun. And he, he was genuinely interested in what you were saying to him when he was there for the 30 seconds that he gave you, he gave you a hundred percent of that 30 seconds. He didn't let any other outside things happen. When someone walked up with a clipboard to talk to Mr. Bianchi, he'd hold his finger up. He would never let a suit interrupt you when he was standing there. There was a lot to be learned from this man. He was classy, well put together, well spoken, learned, and nice. And when he talked to you, he gave you 100% of his attention. Which means to me that he valued me, right? So I learned from Sam Bianchi to take care of your employees, and so that was in 1993. I worked for that company through '94, got a got a job elsewhere, moved on down the road. Well, fast forward to 2000. I was selling cars out in Milford, Michigan, at a little tiny store that had been bought by a giant dealership family, and they were going to convert this store into this big Taj Mahal out on the freeway, which they eventually did. And at the time it was this little tiny showroom, no cars in it. And we were ramping things up and, and I was recruited to go work there because I had been in a large Lincoln Mercury store and it done pretty well. I was young. They wanted young people cause they thought young people would be full of energy and that. And I went there and I just, I wasn't feeling it. It wasn't, it wasn't what I wanted to do. I loved the car business, but selling cars, wasn't where i was strong i was i had strong personal skills i had, was able to talk to people i liked organization i liked spreadsheets i liked management type things and that was the direction i wanted to head well things weren't going well i moved i went over there in 99 uh right before my daughter was born a couple of weeks before my youngest daughter was born and by that that christmas i had had enough I was driving an hour one way to work. I wasn't selling that many cars. I wasn't happy. My bucket wasn't full. Now, these are very nice people. Um, you know, the owner there, Dave Kolb, did all of the things that I talked about, came around, made sure you were good, remembered your wife's name. You um, know, And, I'll, and I'll, I'll get back to him in a minute because down the road, I found out a very, very important lesson from him. So I went in and turned in my resignation. I couldn't do it anymore. And I started looking on monster jobs and, uh, found this job and it was to be the director of marketing and sales, which is essentially a, a vice president position at Livernoy vehicle development. So I was very intrigued. So, uh, I went out there, I got the, I did a resume, I sent it in, I got the interview. I'm sitting in the interview and I'm interviewing with the CEO and what I will call the general manager, a guy named Cass Hershey, who I learned a ton from him too. And I'm sitting in this, in this meeting and, you know, we're going through all, she's going through all the things, you know, and I'm sitting there in a suit and I've got everything. I'm, I'm, you know, I really want this job. And she says, you know, have you ever, have you ever been in this building? I know you worked for us before. Have you been in this building? I said, yeah. What I didn't tell her was that I was friends with her son all along. And uh, I told her I was just here a couple of weeks ago. And she looked at me kind of odd. She's like, why were you here a couple of weeks ago? I go, well, I'm friends with Danny, your son. And she said, well, why didn't you tell me that? And I said, because I didn't want to get the job because I was friends with Danny. I wanted to get the job because I was qualified. And here's what's interesting about that job. This is at Livernoy Vehicle Development. This is in the year 2000. I had worked there seven years prior to that on the floor. And Sam Bianchi had left a, a lasting impression on me and so here I am in this job interview. I get offered the job, and it was Sam's job. It was my job to be a vice president at that company. That wasn't my title, but there was not There was the CEO, then me, then Cass. So essentially, he and I were – I was the vice president of marketing and sales and operations. Uh, he was the vice president of operations in the shop. And so here I am. I get this job at this company, who at one time occupied 17 buildings and had over a 1,000 employees. There was eight dudes working there. But but I put my suit on every day. I went in there every day. I went to everybody's workstation. I asked them how they were doing. I remember their wives' name. I remember their kid's name. I remembered something about them, and I gave them 100% of my attention. And I learned from that that you can get what you want but it's not always going to be exactly what you think it is. And so when you, when I say take care of your employees, that's what I mean. Pay them when they're supposed to be paid. Listen to what they have to say. Give them your undivided attention while you're talking to them. And they'll work hard for you. Living to work another day. That is make sure that you get through this day, turn the lights off, set the alarm, Go home. Don't take your work home with you. Come back to work the next day, refreshed, ready to go. So I want to talk to you about another rule. So those are the three major rules for me as an entrepreneur. Now, at my business at Stop USA in Lakeland, Florida, we have three full-time technicians or mechanics. I have one full-time general manager slash counterperson. And then I have one operations manager slash counterperson, my daughter. What I do here is basically drive the ship. I rely on everybody to come to me and tell me what they're going to do. I take that information, I process it, I make recommendations of things that maybe could be done in a little bit different order, uh, something that maybe needs a a little bit more attention. But the rule that I teach all of my employees, the first rule that I teach them and the one that I hold them to is what I call the 300% rule. Now, this isn't my rule. I didn't make this up, but I did institute it in my business, and therefore, that gives you some credit when you implement something into your business that works, that is a proven model, that is easy to articulate, easy to understand, easy to process, that is a favorable feather in your cap. I call it the 300% rule. Now, what does a 300% rule mean? Obviously you can't have 300%, right? Well, it means that 100% of our guests, 100% of our customers are offered 100% of our goods and services 100% of the time. So think about that for a second. The 300% rule could be applied in any situation in your life. It can be applied in your marriage. Make sure that you give your wife or your partner 100% of yourself of your attention, 100% of your effort, 100% of the time, right? Or your family. I give 100% of my family, 100% of my time, attention, emotion, availability, all those things 100% of the time. Is it possible to do that? Mm, Probably not, but it's a rule. Doesn't mean rules are meant to be broken, but it's something we should work towards. Now, underneath the auspices of the 300% rule, as it applies specifically to the job that I do, and hopefully you do to some degree, there are some rules under that. One of the rules is know your inventory. So, as a counter person, as a salesperson, as somebody who has to sell things in order to get the job that they're going to get done, done, like a mechanic. You get a bike on a hoist and you start working on it and you realize, oh man, it wasn't the tire that was bad. It was the wheel bearings, right? Know your inventory. And this includes what you have in stock on your shelf and what's in your warehouses. Now, right now, if you're in the motorcycle industry, this is July, 2021. So, Down the road when this podcast gets listened to by somebody else a couple years ago, maybe somebody five years from now that's not even in this business right now, but they're going to go back and they're going to listen to this and they're going to listen to what this rambling idiot from Florida said. We are in dire need of product right now. I can't get I can't get throttle cables. I can't get clutch cables. There's certain companies that I can't get audio systems or audio components from. You know, it's like uh, Smokey says in Friday, y'all ain't never got two things that go together. You got Kool-Aid, no sugar, right? I can get speakers. I can't get an amp. I can get a head unit. I can't get an installation kit. Things like that. So know your inventory. So what we're having to do right now is we're having to Pivot. And, and, and you've got to find something positive in everything that you do. And right now, there's some negative negativity because we have basically sold everything to the backs of the shelves over the last year that we were in COVID. We had the motorcycle industry, by all standards, has had a record year and a half. Companies have posted profits and sales and in things that they never thought they would hit. Certainly not right now. So you have to know your inventory. So before we go and sell somebody something, we make sure it's in the warehouse. Before we go order something and spend our money, we see if we have it in stock. Now, if we have it in stock, it's likely something that we wanna keep in stock. So we've gotta reorder one. If the warehouse doesn't have one, it goes on back order. But rule number two is sales learn to sell from an empty shelf this has served me better than most things have in my career and i'll give you an example in 1992 i worked for a company called super shops super shops had 165 stores nationwide they had three warehouses they had two corporate jets they were in probably 35 or 40 states uh, they owned their own trucking company, they owned their own construction company, they owned their own inventory management company. They they were a um, they were an outlier. That company was a juggernaut in 1992. In 1997, it ceased to exist and that'll be something we talk about because I've borrowed a lot of stuff from that company. But one of the things they taught me was was to sell from an empty shelf. Now, how do you sell from an empty shelf? What does that mean? That means that, number one, you know your inventory, in store and in warehouse, but selling from an empty shelf has saved me when I didn't have a lot of money. If you know the inventory in your warehouse, Then you know how fast you can get it to your store so i learned to sell from an empty shelf it has to do with controlling the the, the flow of the sale right selling from an empty shelf means that you are adhering to rule number one you know your inventory and you know what's in stock in your warehouse and yes a customer can order it on amazon or can order it from a mail order house They can go online and find how much it costs at JP Cycles, and they can order from JP Cycles. That's something that didn't used to occur 30 years ago. But it's definitely, it's not going anywhere. It's not going anywhere. But you need to learn to sell from an empty shelf. But that means you've got to incorporate rule number one. Rule number three, it's not your money. It's not your money. This goes both ways. Okay? Never look at somebody... And decide how much money they have to spend until you have a conversation with them. And once you start spending their money with them, because when you own a motorcycle shop, you spend a lot of time spending other people's money with them. It's a relationship. Just because you wouldn't spend $1,000 on a wheel doesn't mean a customer wouldn't. Just because you wouldn't spend $10,000 on a paint job doesn't mean a customer wouldn't. And subsequently, just because you're more than willing to spend $10,000 on a paint job, don't expect a customer to do it. Understand what it is your customer is looking for. You have to listen to what, what the customer wants. Now, here's rule number four. This one, if you own a custom motorcycle shop or a custom car shop and you don't do this, this is a critical failure on your part. Always do a walk around, always do a walk around. The biggest sales always happen away from the front counter. The best sale experience that you will have as a motorcycle shop owner, as a counter guy working at a motorcycle shop, the biggest and best sales always happen away from the front counter. And you do this by doing a walk around. Customer comes up, they come in, you greet them. How's it going? A Couple of pleasantries. They start asking questions. You should always start in the parking lot. Hey man, is your bike here? Let's take a look at it. Go out there, look at their bike. Find something to compliment. Find something you think is cool. Almost everyone has done something to their motorcycle to personalize it, to make it theirs. And there's a lot of information in that choice. What kind of air cleaner they have? What kind of pipes they have? What kind of paint they have? What kind of wheels they have? What kind of bars they have? If a guy rolls up on a wide Y-glide with short shots and a set of 17 or 18-inch apes, rather, that guy's not a performance guy. And it's cool because he likes his bike. And rule number three is it's not your money, but it's also not your bike. Do a walk around. Here's a little pointer for you. When you're doing the walk around, if you see something on the customer's bike, like a scratch, let's say there's a scratch on the bike or a dent in the tank. Don't say anything. Try this. If you think I'm wrong, try this. The next time a customer comes in, do the walk around with them, find a scratch on their bike, and just touch it. Don't say anything. Touch it. Nine times out of ten, they will tell you exactly where the bike was when that happened, who did it, how it happened, and how pissed off he was that it happened, or she Guarantee it. 60% of the time it works every time. So always do the walk around. The biggest sales happen away from the front counter. They always have. They always will. No one walks in and and says, I want to buy a $3,000 transmission. And then turns around and walks out the first time they came in. That just doesn't happen. get to know your customer get to know their bike when you do a walk around there's opportunity maybe their grips are a little bit old you could show them the new grips the new odi grips the heart luck grips the vans grips maybe their stainless steel cables are yellow you could sell them a new set of cables not right now because you can't get them but you get where i'm going with that right maybe there's a broken exhaust bracket maybe they don't know how to service their motorcycle maybe they don't understand what it takes to keep the motorcycle safe, and you can look at the tire and go, "That tire's bald." Hey, man, how about some tires? Check out the brake pads. Do a walk around. It'll make you money. It'll make the customer happy. If he comes in to show you his motorcycle and he walks out with an estimate for tires for five or six hundred bucks, he might not buy them today. But when he, trust me when I tell you, when he goes home and sets that estimate on the counter, and his wife picks it up. And his wife says, what is this? Oh, I was over at the bike shop today and they uh, they looked at my tires. Do you need tires? Yeah, I need tires. Did you get tires? No, I didn't get tires. Well, guess what? I'm not riding on your bike, dummy, until you get tires, right? So you just, she just sold tires for you. Rule number five, understanding your customer's priority. Okay. Now, this isn't what your customer sees as a priority. This is determining... The, the order of priority of customers, okay? Understand customer priority means there's three different kind of customers, right? Actually four. The first one is a customer on the phone. The second one is a new customer in the showroom or new business in the showroom. The third is a customer in for delivery. The fourth is a customer that sends in an email requesting service. So in those four orders, Think about this for a second. Who's the most important customer? The customer on the phone? New business in the showroom? A customer in for delivery? Or customer online? I'm going to tell you, it's the customer on the phone. And hear me out on this. I know that we're taught through social constructs that if you're having a conversation with somebody, you shouldn't be interrupted. Well, when you're working the counter whether you work the counter at uh, an air conditioning parts counter, or an auto parts counter, or you work down the road from me at the hydraulic seal shop, the customer that's standing in front of you is there to do what? Spend money with you. He's also already there. So if a customer comes into your shop, they are there to spend money. It's on you to follow rule number one, knowing your inventory rule. Number two, learning to sell from an empty shelf rule. Number three, understanding it's not your money. Number four, do your walk around and five understanding customer priority. The customer that's in the showroom, they can wait a minute. The customer that's there for delivery. They've already waited to have their bike worked on. They can wait a little longer. So the number one priority in any situation like this is the customer on the phone. Why? Because we don't have their money yet. They're not in the store yet. They deserve the highest level of attention because we're trying to get them to come to our location and be the next customer to spend money with us. So think about the priority there. People online are what they do not want to come in. They do not want to call until they know that you have exactly what they're looking for exactly for the price. And that's a tricky situation. And a lot of companies are not equipped to handle it. An online customer is not a loyal customer. Generally speaking, customer in the showroom for new business can wait just a minute while you answer the phone, a customer in for delivery you've already earned their business, customer on the phone, you still have to earn their business. Now, rule number six is a, is a kind of a culmination of all these rules. You've got to control the sale. You are the sales professional. You're, it's your front counter. It's your showroom. It's your shop. You have the parts, you have the information, whatever it is the customer is there to get. They're there either to reassure themselves that they already have the information and that they're correct, or they're there to purchase. So listen to the customer's wants and needs and know when to close. Know when to ask for the sale. Then stop talking. If you keep talking, you will talk yourself out of the sale. Okay? Never talk yourself out of the sale. Never overcomplicate the sales process. Stick to these six rules, plus the main rule. So if you look at the 300% rule for what it is, 100% of our customers are offered 100% of our goods and services 100% of the time, then following the other six rules should be no problem. So know your inventory. Learn to sell from an empty shelf. Know it's not your money. Always do a walk around. Understand your customer priority order. And control the sale. Listen to the customer's wants and needs. Know when to close. Then stop talking. Never talk yourself out of a sale. We've all done it. You'll do it. You've probably done it already. But all these things work together to create the 300 percent rule and we have a mantra at cycle stop USA our customer sets the expectation we set the standard so you have to decide what that standard is what is your standard of care my standard of care is to know my inventory learn to sell from an empty shelf understanding that it's not my money I always do a walk around I understand the customer priority order the customer is on the phone is my most important customer and i've learned to control the sale i listen to customer wants and needs i know when to stop talking and i know when to close and i don't talk myself out of the sale these are these are muscles that you learn to develop and there's great books out there the greatest salesman in the world that's a that's a great book the one minute salesman right all those books those self-help books you can laugh at them all you want but they work there's little tidbits of information in every single one of those little tidbits of information in every single one of those i can remember when we started this business back in december 3rd of 2003 when we opened and a guy came in he was wanting to get now back then cycle stop usa didn't exist we owned a company my dad and i owned a company called jr cycle works and when that company started i can remember I just threw myself into the catalogs to learn them over and over and over. Every page, every page, every page. I would take the drag fat book home and I would just labor over it. And I can remember putting together an estimate for a customer who wanted a pair of wheels from PM. Wheels, rotors, pulley, tires. And this is 2003. And I want to say it was around it was probably pretty close to five thousand dollars which isn't that far off the mark from where where they cost now and i can remember when the customer left with the estimate he didn't buy him that day he did end up coming back and buying them but when the customer left the estimate my dad came over to me and he goes what did you just write up for that customer i said it was a set of wheels he goes for what and i said well for his motorcycle he's got a road king and my dad said five thousand dollars. and i said yep and he went back to his desk and he sat down. And he goes, I can't do this. And I said, you can't do what? He said, I, "I, there's no way I can do that. I would never spend that kind of money on a set of wheels. I just, I couldn't ask somebody to spend that kind of money. And I said, dad, I didn't ask him to spend that kind of money. I didn't ask him at all. He came in asking me right? So which one of the rules did we follow, right? Rule number three, it wasn't our money. And that's what I told my dad. I said, dad, it's not your money. It's not your money now. It's not going to be your money later. It's never your money. And it isn't. If you're going to help somebody spend their money, put yourself in their shoes a little bit. Don't go overboard, but help them spend their money. They're there to spend money. That's how all of these things work. That's how the pieces and parts work, right? So we went over the 300% rule. We went over the sales rules. The customer sets the expectation. We set the standard. We're at 50 minutes. I hope you enjoyed hearing about the 300% rule please make sure you visit our sponsors. It helps us incredibly. Electric Lighting, Bell Helmets, the Arlen Ness Motorcycle Company, Team Dream Rides in Maryville, Tennessee, in Stockton, California, 1620 USA, best workwear on the planet. Lifetime guarantee made here in the good old United States. Don't forget the High Seas Rally. The High Seas Rally was canceled for 2021, but in 2022 it's coming back. I'll be there. Chris from Cycle Source will be there. Tom Kiefer from Franklin Church Choppers will be there. Rick Bray, Paul Yaffe, Xavier Muriel from Providence Cycle Works will be there on that ship. We're going to whoop it up, do some episodes of Greasing Gears TV, the belly flop contest, and the drinks are free. So go to highseasrally.com. I hope you're following me online. It's Garage Built Podcast on Instagram or my personal page at Speed Metal Built. I appreciate you hanging out with me. I promise I'm going to get better at this. Have a great work week. This is episode 64. The 300% rule. I will, uh, I will be back in one week. Do it all over again. Thanks, guys.